Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hi everyone, it's Darren Lim here from the ANU, here with Alan Gingell of the AIIA. Here is part two of our conversation with Linda Jacobson. Linda, let's turn to Taiwan, uh, given that it's in the news and we've all of us here in Australia have been listening to the beating drums across news broadcasts recently. And you've, uh, you've also been focusing on it in some of your recent research. How should we think about the dangers of the situation across the Taiwan Straits? Alan, I definitely think the tensions across the Taiwan Straits are more worrying today than they were in 2012, nine years ago, when Xi Jinping came to power. There's no doubt about it. But before I proceed and explain why, I do want to interject that exaggerating the dangers and beating these drums of war, I think, is totally unconstructive. Yes, we need to be aware of changing realities across the Taiwan Strait. Yes, we need to certainly be aware that there could be military conflict at some point in the near to midterm because of the Taiwan Strait, but we should also be aware that the chances of that happening are extremely small. And beating those drums is really unproductive and not in Australia's interests. But to go to your question, what has changed is Xi Jinping becoming very clear that we cannot leave the unresolved political status of Taiwan to future generations, which for the last four decades has been the mantra, the baseline of the PRC leaders. Reunification is inevitable, according to them, and has been, according to them. But everyone accepted Deng Xiaoping's thinking that let's leave this to future generations. After all, Deng Xiaoping's thinking was the reason why the United States and the People's Republic of China were able to start discussing in the early 70s diplomatic ties between the two countries, and then those diplomatic ties were formed in 1979. It was because Deng Xiaoping was not insistent that a solution to that extremely complex question of reunification needed to be spelled out. It was enough that the United States acknowledged China's insistence that there is only one China. So the fact that Xi Jinping has now come out and said, we cannot leave this question of reunification to future generations tells me that he wants to, during his lifetime, go down in history as the man who, at a minimum, started the unification process. And so there is a timetable now. Now, Xi Jinping could be in power for the next 20 years. It's absolutely possible. In 2035, Xi Jinping will be 82, approximately the same age as Joe Biden at the end of his first term in the White House, I should note. But the fact that there is now a timetable and the fact that the PRC has clearly noted moves by the United States to start treating Taiwan more and more as a quote-unquote normal country, which goes against, in Beijing's eyes, everything that has been agreed upon, that there is only one China, makes me very concerned that at some point 
Xi Jinping will choose to put so much pressure on Taiwan that he will seek a resolution to force them to the negotiation table to discuss reunification. Now, in that piece that I wrote for China Matters Explores, I put forward a scenario including all means short of war. I do not think Xi Jinping wants to go to war over Taiwan. I don't think he seeks war. He seeks unification. They, in the mainland, say reunification. I will use the word unification. And if he can do that by piecemeal putting pressure on Taiwan until there's chaos in society, until the political backbone of the political leadership breaks and they agree to talks on terms set by Beijing, I should add, he will be able to claim that he started the process of reunification. So that's the danger, that he has given himself a timetable. And at the same time, the United States is in a bipartisan way, which is quite unusual for anything in the United States at the moment, as we all know, more and more in support of small democratic Taiwan being allowed to have more international space, the international space that they crave and which Beijing adamantly refuses to give them. Do you agree that if Taiwan were to formally declare independence, that we would see a military response from China, although, as you say, she may not want war? I'm going to answer that, Alan, in a complicated way. Taiwanese leaders today already say that Taiwan is independent because the Republic of China, which moved to Taiwan at the end of the Chinese Civil War in 1949, remained in existence and was an independent entity. So declaring independence, I like to say, will not trigger a war. What would trigger a war, and yes, I do think Beijing would use military force to stop and prevent the following happening, is that the Taiwanese leadership would declare Taiwan, not the Republic of China, an independent sovereign nation, and others, especially the United States, but also European nations, Mm. Australia, others in Southeast Asia, would start making moves toward recognizing that sovereign nation. It's the other's reaction to what Taiwan does, which would absolutely, in my opinion, trigger the use of force. I think we have to take seriously innumerable warnings by the CPC leadership that they will use military force to prevent a sovereign entity called Taiwan or second China. Thanks for that, Linda. Let's turn back to Australia now. You've been um, looking at the situation here since 2011, and it's um, looking very different, the relationship between China and Australia from what you saw when you first arrived. How do you interpret it? Do you have a clear idea of what has changed? Was it us or was it them? Or, you know, at least how much of it was us and how much of it was them? Yes, Alan, Um, that relationship between Australia and the PRC certainly has changed from not only 2011, but I would say the first five years of having settled in Australia. I don't think any single event spurred this downward spiral. Rather, it was a string of incidents and actions by Beijing and a string of responses and policy decisions by Canberra that led to what I call this appalling state of bilateral relations. 
Firstly, I don't think it's ever just one party at fault when two parties are in disagreement. Not when we talk about human beings squabbling or talk about governments disagreeing. This is one of the reasons I feel it's been so frustrating to hear the continuous comments by Australian ministers and commentators, and at the same time, continuous comments by PRC senior officials and commentators, that the poor relations are entirely the fault of the other side. Nonsense. Both sides are responsible for this situation. Certainly, PRC actions led many in Canberra around 2016, five years ago, to re-examine the rise of China. I'm thinking about actions such as the PLA dredging artificial islands in the South China Sea and then building military installations on them, despite Xi Jinping's pledge to Obama that Beijing would not militarize the islands. I'm thinking about PRC's hardline policies toward Hong Kong, its repressive policies toward the Uyghurs, Beijing's harsh measures throughout society which aim at stifling freedom of expression and quelling differing views. Many of Beijing's actions chipped away at the image of a peacefully rising power, what Beijing had told the world time and time and again it was planning to be. And I think most of all, if we think about Australia, the perception in public, which was based on numerous Australian media reports and also commentary, that Xi Jinping was overseeing a premeditated campaign via the United Front to undermine Australian democracy. I think this was a defining factor when we think of how Australian political leadership of the day has reacted over the last five, six years. I'm thinking of the Sam Dastiari case, a continuous string of media reports about PRC officials or people representing them meddling in some way in Australian society or trying to influence decisions taken within Australia. I'm thinking about media reports about political donations from unclear, murky PRC sources. I'm thinking, for example, of the Huang Shang Mo case. But then on the Australian side, there's been what I have perceived as one clumsy response or public statement after the other. I think most of all, I question the unilateral decision by the foreign minister to call for an international inquiry into the origins of COVID without consulting or agreeing on joint action with other countries. And then the prime minister using the words weapons inspector powers to describe what Australia thought was needed to investigate the origins of coronavirus. In Beijing's eyes, could there be a more direct affront on the PRC's sovereignty than to evoke an image of weapons inspectors going into Iraq? As I said earlier in our discussions, the intelligence and security establishment today has the upper hand in setting the agenda when it comes to China. But how did this happen? I think Max Such has done an excellent job in probing this question in his articles in the Australian Financial Review. He provides some of the answers, but to my knowledge, no one has really pinpointed and elaborated on a phenomenon that I think is quite instrumental to this development, and that is the inattention to China by the top leadership in Canberra. So when Malcolm Turnbull ousted Tony Abbott in 2015, I remember quite a few respected Australian foreign policy specialists, I happened to be in the company of one at Sydney Airport when news of the spill came, were openly 
quite cheerful. Turnbull was expected to be an exceptional prime minister because, quote, he understands China, end of quote. And generally speaking, because he, quote unquote, understands foreign affairs. I admit, I too was hopeful. But from day one, I think Turnbull had to fight off the right wing of his party. Domestic politics was all consuming. He didn't have time to devote serious thought to formulating a principled, consistent policy toward the PRC. He had to focus on staying in power. And when he did have time to focus on China, the intelligence agency's reports on the PRC were terrifying. They told him all about PRC infiltration attempts. And of course, the same applies to Scott Morrison. He too has had to deal with pressure from the right wing in his party. So in addition to this inattention by the top leadership to China, I think generally speaking, the domestic politics in Australia has been a reason that the China relationship has not been given enough serious thought and allowed the intelligence establishment to position itself as the one calling the shots. I had lived in Australia only about five years when I had already witnessed the fourth prime minister being sworn in. So I think it's rational to ask how can a stable foreign policy be developed amidst such turbulence? And to go back to one of the points I made when we were talking about the Finland example, I think realism, statecraft, diplomacy have been sorely lacking in Canberra. What happens next, do you think, uh, Linda, in the bilateral relationship? Australia has a self-image of itself as being a sort of a vanguard force standing up against China more clearly than any other Western country. Do you think that's right? Can you see any path forward under current circumstances? The Australian government seems to have made a judgment that this hostile stalemate either doesn't matter or that it's just something that we have to live with. Do you agree with that? Okay, difficult questions. And um, I hope I can stop perhaps halfway and hear what you and Darren think about those same questions. First of all, I do not foresee the bilateral relationship improving anytime soon. And I do believe that Australia has drawn a line more clearly than any other Western country. And that's something I find very puzzling. What I perhaps find the most concerning is this reds under the bed mentality, which has taken hold in Canberra. I've written about it. McCarthyism, in my view, is rampant. Saying anything positive about the PRC leads today in Australia to being labeled the stooge of the Communist Party or an agent of foreign influence. I have been called both. Of course, Chinese Australians in particular feel under threat, and that's what I find most concerning. Their loyalty to Australia is being questioned. And I have to say that after not a single government minister came out to condemn by name Senator Abetz when he had demanded that three Chinese Australian guests condemn the Communist Party of China before they respond to a question at a Senate hearing, I simply could not help thinking so much for Australia priding itself as the most successful multicultural nation on the planet. And there's another thing that worries me, and that's that I question the government's expectation, perhaps it's even a demand, that everyone toes the line. Today, business executives, to my knowledge, are being told 
in the name of Team Australia, that they are not working in the national interest, or worse yet, they do not support Australian values if they disagree with the government's China policy. I find it questionable in a democracy that a government minister goes about trying to squash dissent in this manner. Of course, I also find it questionable that business executives just meekly remain silent. But then to your specific question about this hostile stalemate and does it matter, I do think it matters. I think economists could more skillfully than I can explain precisely the economic losses and perhaps the impact on employment which the PRC's ongoing punitive economic measures are having. I know for sure that Australia has certainly suffered a blow to its reputation as a country which is reliable and a good place to invest in. I think the treasurer's decision to nix the sale of a dairy owned by a Japanese entity to a Chinese entity was just about the last straw. And I'm always reminded by Australian colleagues how important foreign investment has always been for Australian prosperity. But if I think about this as a political analyst, I ask, does Australia really want to become an outlier in the region? As we've talked about in this podcast, every country in Asia is trying hard, is struggling to find the right policy responses to Beijing. In that sense, Australia is not alone and could take some lessons from other countries in the region. And it's going to become increasingly challenging as PRC's power grows. And of course, Taiwan will remain a volatile issue. But no other country goes out of its way to poke Beijing the way Canberra has now done. It could be good for domestic political reasons to assure voters that we're standing up to the PRC. But I think in the mid to long term, this chest beating is going to prove detrimental to Australia's interests. The PRC is the new regional hegemon, and Canberra needs to learn how to deal with it. I wrote two years ago in A New China Narrative for Australia, for all our likes and dislikes, we have to find a way to have a constructive relationship with the People's Republic of China. I'm well aware that many security establishment people in Canberra took exception to it. Of course, these same people were quiet when John Howard only late last year in another podcast, said just about the same thing, that finding a way to coexist and even cooperate with China is a vital strategic interest for Australia. I think at some point, Southeast Asian countries will not look to Canberra as a credible partner any longer when they need to discuss regional issues that require regional responses. I note that in a recent survey, the majority in seven of 10 ASEAN countries said that they would choose Beijing if they had to make a choice to align with either Beijing or Washington. I still feel strongly that work should be done, must be done to forge that constructive relationship with the PRC. One that's in Australia's interest, one which of course is based on a staunch defense of Australian values. And I think one way to start would be to work towards changing, transforming that one-dimensional ugly narrative of the PRC, which I've mentioned earlier in this podcast. I honestly think we need the good, the bad, and the ugly narrative. And this is, for example, going to be a new focus for China Matters and China Matters work. When before we worked mostly behind closed doors, 
Now in this new phase of soured bilateral relations, I think China matters must focus on being part of the public debate. Because at the moment, I don't think politicians dare pursue a constructive relationship with Beijing. They're afraid to say anything positive about the PRC, such as the vehement anti-PRC sentiment in Canberra, but also among voters. Being constructive about China at the moment is not going to win any elections. So we need to have many kinds of views about China as part of the public debate. I think it's now my turn to ask you, Alan, and you, Darren, how do you see the bilateral relationship moving forward? <laughs> um, where do I begin? You know, what I didn't hear from you, Linda, and I'll give you a chance to respond, um, was uh, you know, quibbles with concrete policy settings. And there was a fascinating piece just published a couple of days ago in the Lowy Interpreter by Elliot Zagman, which sort of posits the idea that New Zealand and Australia offer a sort of a political science experiment where the substantive policy positions on bilateral issues are similar, but the tone has been very different. And the question is, does tone matter? Will tone help New Zealand achieve its interests more than Australia can with the tone that we have taken? And I think that for me is the question, like what could we do Putting to one side the politics of it, but what could we do that would be acceptable? I guess you have to bring politics in at that point in terms of a concrete policy changes that could begin a cycle, a positive, a virtuous cycle that would, for example, even get our ministers talking again because we don't even have that. And I think the criticism that is levied um, or the response to the criticism that is levied from those who are comfortable with the, the government's position right now is tell us what we should do and tell us things that we could do that wouldn't compromise our values or in concrete ways compromise our national security, and then we can have a conversation. And, and they at least don't hear what those ideas are. What do I think? I think that yeah, I agree with the, the argument that the messaging has been ill-disciplined. I agree with the argument that there are political segments, especially on the right and within the media and probably within government, that are locked in and are making it politically very difficult for the government to change in a major way. But I sort of draw analogies to the issue of climate change. And we had Howard Bamsey on the podcast late last year, and he just expressed bewilderment at how Australian policy could get to a position where it is right now and how that makes us look internationally. And I asked him, well, what does it take to change? And his answer in part was leadership and in part it was the influence of other larger countries. And I think on China, it's going to be a combination of the two, that we're going to take our cues from the United States in particular. And in fact, it might be that climate change is the pathway to that, that if you see a radical change in Australia's climate change policy, or even a substantive one, not a radical one, that will be accompanied by similar kind of accords between the United States and China, and that might actually be the basis for opening up larger conversations, but that we are not going to do this on our own, and it doesn't look like China is willing to budge, so it's going to need to be some circuit breaker that comes, I think, from taking cues from the United States. But I'll also say one more thing, which is that I think all countries at the moment, certainly in the West, their China policy is in a state of disequilibrium. It's true that we are out front, and that there is a very reasonable argument that we have gone too far. But I think you're also seeing the trend of countries in Europe and the United States and Japan in particular, India certainly, 
moving in our direction. And so it's going to be very hard for Australian policymakers to come back in the other direction because that way our trend would be actually bucking that of all of our closest friends. And so until we see a settled equilibrium of sorts in Europe, I mean, I'm noting that the European Parliament this week is apparently going to formally pass a resolution to, to suspend the Comprehensive Agreement on Investment, the CAI agreement. You know, we're seeing obviously the Biden administration taking a similar line to the Trump administration. Until we see those countries settle on their positions, there just isn't an incentive or even a clear pathway to Australia actually changing course. I would certainly prefer we didn't go even further and that we at least had a standstill. But as a political analyst, I just don't see those mechanisms. And so climate change and then possibly the leadership from the United States and Europe is going to be what gets us there. Okay, Alan, your turn. I agree with almost everything that you said, Darren. Just a couple of points. I think tone does matter, and if there are people who are saying that that it's an irrelevant addition, they don't understand really how diplomacy works. I don't see any easy way out of where we are now. My worry is that because there is no easy way out, Australia is itself going to become more and more marginalised in the, the months ahead. We're just going to become irrelevant to the main debate and the main discussions going on. I think, as you say, it will take changes in the US-China relationship to see a break. Okay, maybe it's my turn to react to your comments. I'm in full agreement with Alan, Darren, the tone really does matter, but so does substance. And for one, if someone asks me, How are we going to get the bilateral relationship even on a track that would work towards a constructive relationship being built? I would say, stop poking Beijing in the eye at every turn. So when you said those in Canberra who by and large support the present China policy keep saying, well, tell us what to do, and they're more than willing to listen. No, they're not, because there was no reason to cancel the BRI Memorandum of Understanding. First of all, Mm. it wasn't an agreement which was binding. It had absolutely no substance content as far as anything happening. It was purely a way to slap Beijing in the face. So that just in itself, for example, could have been left undone. So I don't think it's completely genuine to say, just tell us what to do and we'll do it, that we want a better relationship. Because Also, by not doing things, that's an action in itself. As for what you said, Darren, about other countries, I think it's very important that whatever Australia does, it should consult others in the region. It should listen to others in the region. It should try and find a pathway forward, listening to advice from others in the region. But that's tricky. As I said, everyone is grappling with this same problem. But I think Alan just hit the nail on the head to what I was trying to say when I previously hopefully said, does Australia want to become irrelevant in the region? It's this word marginalized, which I was looking for. I think Australia really runs the risk of becoming, in many senses, irrelevant if it continues on this path. No one is going to want Australia as a partner if that is an added detrimental factor in dealing with Beijing. It's just a fact of life. And I think it's a 
illusion that others, including the United States, despite the positive rhetoric of support for Australia in this very difficult time by Washington, that they're concretely going to in any way adjust or compromise their own national interest for the sake of Australia. This is something that I think is not paid enough attention to. The United States is not going to stop selling X commodity to China and letting American businesses earn money because of the punishment that Beijing has meted out to Australia. The world doesn't work that way. End of story. Also, you mentioned Europe. So I do want to say a few words about that. It's a very interesting time to watch how various European nations and then the EU as a body at the moment is grappling with China. I think one of the real mistakes that Beijing made over the last few months was going after European politicians and even a think tank. It happens to be a think tank in Germany, which is looked upon as pretty pro-engagement yes. in all. So certainly... You're right, within the EU body, there is a lot of pushback now, and the decision not to ratify the investment treaty is one of them. But a very interesting dynamic is taking place between Germany and France. Now the UK is out there on its own, so it's no longer the Troika. Germany and France are not willing to join Biden in a substantial pushback against China. They still believe in engagement. They are still trying to find ways of having a constructive relationship and maintaining the constructive relationship that they have with China. So obviously things can change rapidly when we see who replaces Merkel on that front. But the EU is not unified. China is very skillful in playing divide and conquer. But certainly Merkel and Macron continue to believe that engagement is an important facet of their relationship with China. And that too should be thought about in Canberra. I asked this question to Frances Admerson when she was on the podcast some time ago. Do you think Beijing has made its mind up about Australia fully? I mean, even if we toned things down and created at least a more supportive atmosphere, sort of long-term, are we always going to be in a bucket with the United States or even, even further on a spectrum? Or do you think that there is still debate inside China about who and what we are and what drives our thinking and our decision-making? Firstly, I don't think anything is forever. And if I've learned one thing as a China watcher over the last 30-plus years, it's very difficult to predict. And something I alluded to when we discussed concerns about safety in China today, and I said something has to give, that repressive nature cannot go on forever. So too can this hostile state of affairs between Australia and China cannot go on forever. There will be a circuit breaker. It'll be a moment when China realizes that it needs Australia for something that's in China's national interest. And as long as at that point in time, Australia has stretched out its hand or signaled that it's going to stop, like I call it, poking Beijing intentionally in the eye, I think there will be a new era of Australia-China relations. Nothing like I said, is forever. All right. Well, I've just got one more question, and this is sort of to zoom out beyond the Australian debate. I mean, we've been talking just now about what Australia can do, but then there is the question of, of how we can influence China and how the West more broadly can shape China's choices. And 
when I sort of read the debate as a theorist and as an analyst, I sort of see it, you know, if I'm trying to simplify it, you can kind of simplify it or collapse it down into two camps. And the first camp talks about the irreconcilable interests between the West and China, and, and they focus on China's hyper-nationalist, authoritarian, Leninist political model. And so their argument is that the most effective mechanism of influence is going to be based upon a deterrence logic, whether this is on Taiwan or human rights, technology and the issue of decoupling, that deterrence is the way we should think about it. And the second camp argues that deterrence is most likely to be unnecessarily provocative. It really does increase the risk of a devastating war and that the broad approach needs to be to keep talking, to keep trading, to keep engaging, especially on issues of shared global interest like climate change. And I think that underneath that is a logic that we're trying to bind and align China's interests sufficiently with those of the West to ensure that the notion of fighting a war becomes unthinkable on, for both sides. And now, of course, these are simplifications and you can, of course, find nuanced positions within both camps. And I would hope that no government, you know, views China relations solely through the lens of deterrence or through engagement. But let me ask the question this way, you know, for our listeners and especially for students who are, you know, we hope are still looking to devote their careers and their professional lives to China and are coming to this debate fresh. What should be their starting point for thinking about how to influence China and how to shape its choices? How useful is it even to think about my simplification, my binary of engagement versus deterrence? And oh, broadly, what, you know, what kind of policies are likely to be effective in the short to medium term? That's a big, big question. Obviously, engagement and deterrence are both needed. We have to find a balance between them. I'm openly a pro-engagement advocate. If you don't discuss with your counterpart, how can you possibly hope to have an impact on your counterpart's thinking and possibly shape their policy choices? You have to first understand what the PRC wants, what are its goals, why is it behaving like it is behaving, before you start crafting policies which protect and promote your interests. I think especially a small and medium-sized country has to do that when dealing with a great power. Naturally, acute knowledge of history is important, especially as, and it's not just a cliche, Chinese are very history conscious. I again go back to the need for Australia to create more opportunities than at present for young Australians to study Mandarin, but also to work in the PRC, not necessarily in the realm of foreign policymaking. Work in the PRC, live there as adults, will give them a sense of the PRC in a way that otherwise not possible. And lastly, I can't emphasize enough that when you do have an understanding of what China wants, it makes sense to work with others to discuss these approaches. For example, Australia should discuss with Indonesia much more than I've understood happens how they interpret China. How do they interpret PRC's intentions, their strategic intentions? I've even gone as far as to suggest that a working group be formed between Indonesian and Australian senior officials, a China working group, because we need to know what our closest neighbor is thinking, how they're dealing with the pressures. We shouldn't think that this is an Australian problem. It's a regional challenge. But much too little time and energy is devoted to China 
I think, when thinking about the key other relationships in the region. Australia has a lot to learn. I think small and medium-sized countries need to work much more closely together. But importantly, and maybe these will be my last words on this podcast, let's see if you still ask me something, Darren, they need to work with the PRC. Well, Linda, we've been here for a couple of hours now. And for those of our listeners who have stuck with us across this double episode, thank you. It's been a a fascinating conversation. And it just reminds me that on such a complex and critical issue, I mean, two hours is nowhere near enough. We could have gone on for 10 easily and still not gotten to some of the heart of these issues. And I hope that this podcast and this episode in particular you know, really represents the kind of discussion and discourse and policy thinking that is really needed in Australia. So Linda, thank you both for the work that you've done to help our country in the past decade. Um, But thank you for joining us today and sticking with us for a couple of hours. It's been a fascinating, stimulating conversation, and we hope to bring you back again sometime in the future. Thank you, Darren. Thank you, Alan. I've really enjoyed preparing for this and really enjoyed the podcast today. Well, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. As always, we want to thank AIIA intern Dominic Yap for her help with research and audio editing and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Thank you and talk to you again soon. Thank you.